In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Lord, make us worthy to pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not to temptation, but lift us from evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Alrighty, as usual, those who are willing to turn on their cameras will be greatly appreciated. Um, and if not, no problem. It just would be nice. Um, so, um, we're going to pick up today again with First um, Corinthians. And uh, for those who missed last week, um, you might want to uh, go online and listen to the background because there's a bit of an overview that we did um, to understand the culture, the mood, the context of what's going on with Corinthians, some of the terminology that's going to be used um, to go from there. Um, this book in particular, we're gonna we're gonna get into it. We'll read we'll read chapters one and two. They're short, and then we'll we'll get into it to explain it. Um, this book is, I think, particularly relevant to startup churches, which there's a lot more of now. I think that's a new phenomenon for us. Our parents started churches 40, 50 years ago in, in North America and Europe and Australia. Um, but we're seeing this new wave of building new churches because we now have a lot of these new mission churches, there's new locations. Um, and so the, the problems, I think, with the first Corinthians are relevant to new churches, startup churches, mission churches, um, particularly mission churches, I think, because there's this mix of Gentile and Jew. Um, but also, um, I think it's very relevant with the political landscape, both of, of the city, um, the world, like the states, Canada, um, and politically. But I also think within the church politically, even for not new churches, because a lot of this in-house fighting that we're seeing um, was really common too with, with the Corinthians. And so it's going to be really important. So the theme of the first four chapters um, is, is unity. Okay, I'm just going to do that and then we'll, we'll read it and then we'll, we'll break it down. And Paul's going to repeat that over and over and over. In fact, in verse 10, he's going to say three times this oneness. Um, and then, so that's a broad theme. Um, and St. Paul takes the divisions extremely serious. In chapter, seriously, sorry. In chapters one and two, he's going to speak generally. And then from three on, it's going to get ultra specific. So this week we're dealing more with um, the general sense of unity, and then he's going to hone in on particular problems that they're happening that are happening, um, and he's so serious about them that he's talking about how this could prove to be the destruction of the church. And I really think, I'm sure he was right, right? Disunity in the church is the is the reason why um, that there's an there's an issue. Um, why we're, why the church is weak today? Um, and St. Paul, what he's wanting is that the Corinthians stop being secular, secularly, um, person centered. That's why I think this is so relevant. And we're going to talk about that a lot today. It's about secularity, um, in the church. Um, I'm getting messages that the cam and video and audio are not working so i don't know if that's the case can someone uh wave or do something if they can see in here 
Okay. I don't know what to do. They can hear and no no video. Okay. I don't know what to do. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. I don't know how to fix the video part. Hopefully it comes back, but um, my bad. I don't know. I've tried turning it on and off, and so I don't know how to how to fix it. I'm really, really sorry. Um, and he's going to want the... Um, sorry, we're saying that, that disunity is a problem, secularity is a problem. He's going to be pushing unity. Um... And he's going to zoom in on people claiming who they belong to and all that kind of stuff. So let's read the chapters one and two. We'll come back. We'll discuss and get more in it. Hopefully um, the camera has sorted itself out. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to God always for you because of the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him with all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony to Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no dissensions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I am thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone, anyone should say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the house of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. 
Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast of the Lord. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come to you proclaiming, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and wisdom, hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen or ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him. God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the Spirit of the man which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ. Glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Um, um, Mina, if you don't mind, could you put the link to um, Facebook for those who prefer to have a video? Um, and I'll get into it. Okay, so this, this epistle, we're going to get a lot more into um, what it should look like um, to live as, as a Christian. Right, and then how to deal with the problems of society. And I have my pages out of order, so I'm trying to figure out what order these go in because they are lost. I'm so sorry, guys. Um, I think this is page one. Yes, it is. Okay. So I'm not going to spend a long time on the first section of Paul's introductory. There, I can get all academic on you guys, but I'm not going to with a proemium and 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 the 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 structure of, of ancient letters um the only thing i'm going to point out i'm not going to reread it in the first section verses one to nine um is that i mean paul often introduces himself as an apostle but in this particular letter 
Remember that they're fighting about his validity. Okay? So, Paul, when he's calling himself an apostle here, is making a point. He's not just saying, he's, he's trying to assert himself. He's saying, I am an apostle. Right? In the understanding, I mean, it really just meant sent, but they understood it in a special context of being sent specifically by God. Right? That he is sent by Christ to be a witness, and it gives him a certain kind of um, authority. Um, so I want to start from, 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 from verse 10. But the appeal to be in agreement is what he's talking about at the beginning of verse 10. Um, and he's not saying use each other's words, even though the Greek literally means say the same thing. I wish that you would all say the same thing, um, which doesn't mean like use the same words. But his desire is that the group be so united, okay, that they have a commonality, a common front to the rest of the world. Because when the church is united, when the church presents in a united way, her witness becomes even much more effective. The same value system, the same outlook. Um, and that we would be, we should be wanting to avoid schism. We shouldn't be happy ever um, about schism. We should always be worried about schism and unhappy about, about schism. So I appeal to you, brethren, um, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no dissensions among you but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there's quarreling among you, my brethren. What I mean is that each one of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Now, as we said in the introduction, this is a big deal in Corinth, okay? Because the Corinths are these sophisticated people, um, and they're in a newly formed city, relatively newly formed city, and they care a lot about eloquence and sophistry, um, words of wisdom, debate skills, rhetoric skills, um, and how good you are and wise in a secular sense that you sound. And so it wasn't uncommon that students of rival teachers actually sometimes fought. Um, as a matter of fact, um, one orator, um, like a, a professional speaker, a good speaker, um, his disciples beat to death somebody who mocked the person they were following. Okay, so they took this stuff really, really seriously. That's why I'm like, this is, context is really important. I'm, just, I'm trying to help us see what is Paul saying? What is St. Paul saying in his own words, in his own context? How would it have been, to the best of our ability, heard in that century to then apply to ours? Um... And this I am of, I belong to Cephas, or I am of Paul, I am of this, I am of that, um, that actually was a political slogan. It was the way you identified with a political leader. You'd say, I am of this person. And so when St. Paul is saying this, he, he's showing how politicized the church had actually become. He's saying, you, you've got these slogans now. Some of you are, oh, I'm, I'm a Paul, I'm, I'm party Paul, I'm party Apollos, I'm party of whoever. And, and some were like, oh, I, I belong to Jesus, which I think you probably can hear in the voices of today. People say very similar things today as well. And so I want to challenge us of saying, okay, look at what Paul's deepest desire was, was unity. That was what he's saying. That's my, my deepest desire. Is that your desire in any conflict that you see? 
inside the church, outside of the church? Is your actual desire real unity? Or is unity to you, because um, I'm hoping that as we go through these challenges, that you challenge yourself. I don't want you to have in mind other people that you're thinking of. I want you to think of yourself. That's what I'm doing my, my, myself as well, okay? Or is unity to you found when people conform to you or your school, right? Is for you, okay, there will be unity when this group conforms to me or to my idea or to my school or to my philosophy. Because St. Paul right now is calling them out on that and saying the exact opposite to them, okay? Are you insistent that you be part of a particular school? That's something to ask. Because personally, I, I used to like this concept of schools. And, and to some extent, I still do. But there's a difference between discipleship, okay, and belonging to a particular school. They're, they're different things. So there is such thing as a different school of thought. I understand that. But it's different when you're saying, I need to set up this philosophy. This is the right way. This is how we need to do it. I struggled with this, I'll be honest, especially when I moved to, to California. I grew up in a particular school. I liked it. And I was used to doing things in a particular way. And I liked that way. And I thought that way was, was right. But to some extent, I thought it was the only right. And so I started making a mistake that when I'd go to serve in a new church, I had a mindset at the beginning of thinking, I need to recreate Kitchener. But that's not right. Kitchener is built around certain people, a certain community, a certain personality. Um, and all of us have ways of thinking. And so that's what I mean about the difference between discipleship and schools. I shouldn't have an objective of recreating Kitchener. I should have an objective of what is the gospel. And if something is objectively right, then we hold to that because there are going to be different humans with different mentalities, different mindsets, different cultures, different contexts everywhere, right? And that the desire should be unity, not to force something on people where, where I end up becoming divisive. Or we see it in other ways today. Are you school Pope Shenouda? Or are you the school of Abu Nametta? Or are you the school of Amagrorius? Are you of the school of Amba Samuel? Are you of the school of Abuna Bishwai Kamil? Or of Abuna Tadr Smalati? Or of Abuna Lu'a Sidaros? Who is your school? Right? And we start pitting these things up against each other. This is very relevant. Right? And we start saying, oh, I belong to this. And then we start defending these schools. This is what St. Paul is talking about. Like they're political parties. Like we owe them... Um, an allegiance, and he's saying, no, that's not the right way to live. And he's going to tell us what is the right way, but he's calling that out. So how many of us are of school gospel? Like, how many of us is that the first place to go? How many of us read the gospel to even know whether we're in the school of the gospel? So again, do you look for unity? Because St. Paul is emphasizing, it's a, it's a, it's a textual um, skill called anaphora, actually, where you repeat Right? And he's like, no, we need to be same mind, same judgment, oneness. Please, strive to be in agreement. We need to want that. Are you looking for unity or are you, in fact, opportunistic about disunity to create more dissent? Which is something that I feel is happening a lot more these days. 
right? Where there's something going on where you don't like it and you use it as an opportunity to walk away, either to walk away or to fight or to protest or to leave. It's really scary, but I'm, this is a common phenomenon. That's why I'm really like Corinthians. I hope that you guys take really, 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 really to heart, right? What do I mean by that? Let's say, um, forgive me, I'm not going to weigh in on my view, but I'm going to use it as an example. Um, the approach to Eucharist during COVID. There's confusion, there's dissent, and there's anger, and there's mistakes, all of the above. But then somebody comes in and says, that priest or that bishop took this decision or this way of doing it. Wow. Having read so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, -and -so, that's so messed up. I belong to school so-and-so. I don't think I can participate in this. Peace out, guys. Is that unity? Or is that taking opportunity of a fight and creating a bigger fight? Because then when you also state your view and then people follow you and then you get people worked up, is that what it is? Is your pursuit, is your desire unity? Because if your desire is unity, that's not going to be a reaction. Even if you need to say something's wrong, you're not going to say it like that. And St. Paul is saying that is not how to do it. Okay? This is so, 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 so relevant. Because, as he continues to ask, is Christ divided? Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Me? That's him writing about himself. Is it me? Did I die for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Did I dunk you three times underwater and say, I baptize you so-and-so in the name of Paul the Apostle? No. I am thankful, he says, that I didn't baptize almost any of you. I only baptized Crispus and Gaius. And then he's like literally thinking out loud as he writes. And he's like, no way. I think I did the house of Stephanus. I don't even keep track. I don't remember, he says. Right? This is Paul letting loose. He's writing really casually. Um, Christ did not, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul's like, no, I'm not a sophist. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not brilliant. I'm not one of those guys. Because, and thank God I'm not. Because it's not about worldly wisdom that we're here. So Paul's call for unity is recognizing the source of the plea and the source of harmony, which he says is, in verse 16, what is going to be this united point? The mind of Christ. The mind of Christ. Not the mind of any single one of you in the room, not the mind of AP, not the mind of Emma Sarabian or Emba Mina or Emba Boulis or whoever your bishop is, the mind of Christ. Every individual believer, no matter what their rank. This is Paul writing, who's an apostle, that he's been adamant saying, I'm an apostle. Saying the mind of Christ, not mine. This is the only way there will be a source of unity when you come to objective, absolute truth, not yourself as the standard of truth. So Paul has learned of these divisions, the fractures, the rivalries in the community um, from whoever these Chloe's people are. It could be Chloe herself or, or that they had, she had uh, representatives that were traveling. Um, but somebody brought him the news and told him, like, oh, like... Paul, things have gone crazy, right? There's all these, these, these slogans and people are going crazy um, and everybody's saying stuff. 
And so, like we said, that was normal for politicians of the time and competing philosophies. Um, and that term, I am of, was not just used for politics. It was used for children, slaves, devotees of a god, clients. And that's like we talked about the patron-client relationship. So that's what I mean by clients last week. And he's saying, no, 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 no. That language, not in church. That language is not for church. And so he posed these rhetorical questions. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? He's being, he's being rhetorical. He's trying to put the preachers in their place and Christ back in his. Okay? Christ is one person in one body. Christ is not one of the preachers. And it was Christ, not the preachers, who was crucified for the Corinthians' redemption. And so the Corinthians, even though they're baptized by one of the preachers, they were baptized by one of the preachers into someone, Christ. That is where it went. Not into one of them. So their source of identity, he's saying, has to be Christ. And when he says eloquent wisdom, what he's saying is, when he says it was not with eloquent wisdom that I preached to you, he's saying showy rhetoric. It wasn't that I was such a good speaker that this all um, happened. And he's going to explode in a, in a moment, but before we get on to his explosion. Note that St. Paul's concern as a servant was not about his track record. So yes, he's, he's, he's being sarcastic, he's being a little bit upset, but he wasn't counting how many faithful people he created. He wasn't counting how many people filled the pews. He wasn't finding out how many people liked his post. He wasn't looking at how many people were live streaming with him on his Zoom call. Just pointing that out. Second, he always remembered what the service was about and to whom life was directed, God. One of the biggest reasons for dissension and disunity, I would say the reason, is when we walk away from that goal or when we start emphasizing our own personal roles. A person who's focused on himself is going to say things like, I've done this and that, and I just need these other people to insert whatever they need to do here. That's, that's, that's the person who's, who's lost sight of the goal, right? Of like, yeah, I'm trying to set this up when the people fall in line or when this person does this, or when Abuna finally understands this, or if only these servants would understand, or if only this crew would understand, they're just not there yet. But you're not the standard. I'm not the standard. Christ is the standard. The truth is the standard. Sometimes people have a service in mind or a solution in mind to a problem. Remember their context, new churches, dr drama. So they start speaking with conviction as though they are the standard. They calculate everything out and they propose a solution. That in and of itself isn't wrong. But the goal has to be clear in those discussions. God. God and the desire for unity must underlie 
All of it. You should want unity, St. Paul's saying. If you don't want unity, something's wrong with you. It's not Christian. Short of any of this, conflicts will pervade. And matters, how do matters get resolved when the goal isn't unity, when the goal isn't Christ? Bullying, yelling, that's how they get resolved. Who can be the most stubborn? Who can be the loudest? And it's actually so, it's so heartbreaking. And it creates more disunity where you'll have a church fight and then some uncle or tant or some servant will put their foot down and say, nope, I'm not coming if you're doing it like this. I'm not coming. And so he or she gets their way. He's like, oh, no, 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 we don't want to lose this person. It's like, but this isn't unity. This isn't, this isn't Christian, right? So these, I'm saying these, these concepts are, are very pertinent. Um, in this next section, which we read, we need to remember that he's going to talk about wisdom and power. Um, that remember what we were talking about last week, that they're talking about secular wisdom, sophistry, philosophy, um, all of these things. Um, and by power, the Romans are, are, are thinking of Roman power, political power, authority. So Paul's going to contrast the Christian versions of these. Um, verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, those outside the faith, but who are not in being saved. But to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness I will thwart. That's from Isaiah that he's quoting, 29, 14. So for St. Paul, the word of the cross, the message of the crucified Messiah Jesus, that's the power of God released into the world. And so what he's saying is perspective is everything. Those who are called, those who are being saved, those who have entered in through baptism, they're able to see the cross, this foolish, weak thing in the eyes of humanity, as the revelation of God's wisdom and power. Something not evident to someone who's just watching. And this wisdom is not the wisdom of Jewish scribes, or Gentile philosophers, teachers, and speakers. And that's why to them it's it's nonsense, right? Um, you could compare it to hearing native myths and legends, for example, and being like, that's crazy, right? Like some god threw a dipper into the sky and it turned into the little dipper. Right. If you need to believe those fairy tales, go for it. That's what St. Paul is saying about Christianity. He's saying to those on the outside, this is crazy talk. Right? Um, and he's saying it's become a stumbling block of a crucified Messiah or God. I'm going to come back to this, this crucified concept um, in a bit. But to make sense of this, this is like what St. Paul is trying to say is if you're not in the right context, you're not going to get it. So a person who gets parenting, okay, can look at what a parent is doing that looks foolish and recognize that they might be being wise, right? So for example, somebody might 
deal with their child in a particular way and a complete outsider who's never had kids might say that's that's so dumb i can't believe that was his reaction whereas somebody who's been a parent for a while might be like oh that was really smart context um i try to think of some examples of this so for me as a servant i remember i learned a lot from from one of the nurses in, in kitchener i owe him i owe him everything but um one time I spoke to him, I was like hot on the atheism philosophy stuff. Um, and I was like, when do we need to have a talk about atheism? This was like very long time ago. And Abuna was like, no. And I was like, what do you mean? No. Like these kids are going to be exposed. They're going to see this. They're going to see that and all this stuff. And I, and I thought it's a really big deal. And Abuna said to me, no, I hear all these people's confessions. Um, I, I see what's going on. Um, this is not the time people so far right now in this parish, they're not struggling with that. I don't want to put that idea in their mind. I don't want to be the one who exposed them. So I said, okay, three years later, he said, now is the time. Now it is an issue. Now do it. Right. But he had a wisdom that I didn't have. Right to me, I was like, oh, he's missing an opportunity and we have these expertise and blah, blah, blah. No, I was wrong. Right. Or another time when when somebody, a youth called me in the middle of the night, ran away from home, wanted to come spend the night with me. I called my father confession. I called Abuna and I'm just like, what do you think? He's like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I viewed him as foolish, cold hearted. I obeyed, but I thought he was being mean. What I didn't know is this is somebody who would go from house to house, never leave, use their money, take their things, and I was going to get wrecked. And it wouldn't have solved the person's problem. I didn't know. So it was foolishness to me. It was cold hardness to me on the outside. Okay. Or um, when I was young, I'm trying to, to, I'm giving these examples to help, help you understand the mentality St. Paul's talking about. That saying of the Desert Fathers of this monk, who would look down all the time such that he never knew what the ceiling looked like. I used to make fun of that guy. I was like, what's his problem? Why, why is he anti ceilings? What, what a, like, what a fool. When I got older and understood the warfare that can come with the eyes, I was like, man, that guy's brilliant. That guy's brilliant and humble. He was saying, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. I'm not going to be able to control my eyes. I'm going to look down. It was foolishness, right? The wisdom of this world would say, get a grip, dog. Get a grip. Why can't you look, right? Why don't you just learn some self-control? Whereas actually this man was much wiser. He was saying, I know that I don't have it. I'm not going to pretend that I do. It's a different kind of wisdom, different kind of wisdom. So depending on what you want is going to be what you see. And St. Paul is saying what you should want is God. What you should want is unity. Then you'll see differently. You'll see differently if that's what you want. Paul is saying that what isn't God is foolishness. And that's the mentality you're supposed to get. Of saying, what is the framework through which you view the world? That's where you start. Okay, and we're going to get more into that in these coming verses. A crucified God is completely nonsensical. And yet, 
It is literally wisdom personified. And the foolishness in the eyes of the world, that's us today. Let's be real. Where isn't Christianity mocked today? Where isn't Christianity mocked today? But the question is, because he's saying the cross is our power, it's our wisdom. Do you know the power of the cross? Do you have the strength of the resurrection? Do you have confidence in that Lord crucified? I had the blessing of, of being present at an exorcism. I'm not going to tell the story. Um, when I was 19, I think. Um, that was the first time. Um, and one of the most compelling things to me that I had that 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 floored me, threw me, just mind mind blown, was at one point the possessed woman leaped like forward to strangle um, the monk. It was just me, Abuna, and the, and the woman in, in the church. And Abuna, without skipping a beat, held up his cross and said, "In the name of the in the name of God." I command you to release me. And she went flying like she was whacked. And I remember thinking, oh, this Bismillah stuff is real. The sign of the cross stuff is real. Right? Because it had just become a cultural thing to me. Do you know the power of the cross? I ask you. To say that Christ crucified is the power and wisdom of God is also very important for modern readers to understand because... In saying this, Paul is also showing that he believes that Jesus is God. By saying that this is the manifestation of God, that would have been understood in his cultural context of saying this is God. That's just important. Verse 20. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Jews want miracles, Greeks want sophisticated stuff, is what he's saying. But we preach Christ crucified. So opposite, stumbling block to, to the Jews and to the Gentiles. He's saying no one likes this scene, not Jew, not Gentile, this crucified Jesus. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Like we said, he's calling him God here. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Christianity is still a joke. Okay? Paul is saying your secular business, it doesn't work here. And we're like that today. Instead of turning the other cheek, secular society preaches a gospel of human rights. The gospel isn't corporate. The gospel isn't capitalist. So the gospel actually is still foolish. We associate with an alleged God hanging on a tree. Do you think about that? When you see a crucifix on your wall or that you wear around your neck, do you look at it and say, that's God? That's God. Right? St. Paul is saying, look at that. Look at that. And this wisdom of the world, you can, you can put substitute that word for any modern trend. Political correctness, whatever. Whatever agenda you want. That can be placed there. 
For consider your call, brethren. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Because remember what we talked about. We said that the Corinthians were made mostly up of ladder climbers. They weren't people born into nobility. So he's saying, don't forget that you guys actually weren't born into nobility. You guys weren't powerful or of noble birth by secular standards. And God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So, like we said, Roman social class was based on birth rather than on wealth. But by either criterion, birth or wealth, most of the Corinthians came from lower ranks of society. And so there were some people in there that were, that's why I'm saying most of you, some of you are, are born into nobility, but most of you weren't. Um, and so he's going to say, well, what does that mean? But is this comfortable for you? What St. Paul is saying. Is this how you or I operate? Are you happy? Are you comfortable appearing unwise by worldly standards? Because having served for a little bit, I sometimes think we're trying to impress the world as a church. I really do. Sometimes I'll, I'll see that we, as a church, servants will want to say things or have certain talks or discussions just to make sure that we don't sound irrational or backwards. But sometimes we are going to sound irrational or backwards to the world. So that can't be my goal, right? We have to be comfortable being uncomfortable because the world is always going to despise us. The cross is foolishness. And if you look at the history of the church, when the church was in her victorious ages, and I mean the church as a whole, Catholics, Eastern, Roman, Oriental, everybody, Protestants, when the church was in control and the church was victorious, She really went astray. She became very scandalous. Right? That's what happened when the church was, was, was triumphant. And we got humiliated. Versus the early church, which overcame the world literally by living the foolishness of the gospel. By not being worked up about how the world viewed them. By not saying, oh, we need to impress them. By saying, we're not impressive to them. No problem. I wonder like, if St. Paul had any idea that within 300 years of his preaching, everybody in that whole general area and almost the whole entire Roman Empire, almost the whole empire would become Christian. That was where here he was talking about this minority of people who were seen as weirdos were going to, within three centuries, become the norm. It's insane. In a modern example, sorry, Americans, you might not be able to understand this one. In Canada, the Green Party. Right? The Green Party started off as a joke to people. Started off as a joke. Today, anyone in politics knows who Elizabeth May is. She's the, the, the head of that party. 
In secular language, what I'm trying to say is that the joke that was the Green Card Party has become a good example of success, not in terms of votes, but of the effects of constancy. Because if the Green Party said, listen, we're not popular right now, what policies can we change to match everyone else? Then what is the point of it being a political party? It's just copying everybody else. So what I'm asking you is, what is the point of being a Christian if you're just trying to not be a Christian? If your goal of being a Christian is to please the world, then why bother being a Christian? Just go join the world. That's the real question, right? So people like to point at different things with sarcasm and contempt. People are going to look at Christianity and be like, hey, yeah, yeah, you must be a bigot. Yeah, you must be anti-woman. Ah, you must be whatever. And they're going to use sarcasm. They're going to say whatever. Because it's easier for them to do that than to consider the possibility of being wrong. People claim to be comfortable with different ideas and concepts, but I don't think they are. Christian and non-Christian alike. I'm not even just talking about Christian. I think many people are not comfortable hearing other opinions and being challenged and having to know why they believe why they believe. I don't know. Verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in boast of the Lord. So St. Paul is now going to go into two um, demonstrations about how God's divine wisdom and power are revealed. So this first one, he's actually going to appeal, he's appealing to the church of Corinth itself. That's what he just did. Okay, of saying that you guys are an example of God's wisdom and power being revealed in the cross because your status quo is not very impressive. By the standards of the world, no offense, guys, you're not really a big deal. And so God has actually exalted the poor. That's weird. That's totally countercultural. The bottom rung of society have become somebody's, is what he just said in that section that we just finished. And so he's saying the majority of you came from nowhere, you're ladder climbers. And so he's saying, so don't boast in you, because by your standards, you suck. But by God's standards, you don't. God's wisdom and power has been manifested, not secular wisdom and power. So he's saying, you guys are the first one. So he's saying, what is your boasting supposed to look like? Celebrate Christ the Lord as the wisdom from God. And what does he mean by that? Christ crucified. That Christ crucified is true wisdom. He is the embodiment of God's righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. God works through the small. God's wisdom is so different than our wisdom. God shows Noah, some old guy. God shows Gideon, a scrawny little kid. God chose Moses, a guy who could barely public speak. God chose the Virgin Mary. 
meek nobody behind the scenes cleaning out sanctuaries. God chose Joseph, the carpenter. He chose the twelve, real nobodies. Chose Pope Demetrius, guy who makes wine, to be Pope. Where do you boast? The Lord or yourself? If you think that you build yourself, if you think you have wisdom, if you think you're intelligent, if you think you're the problem solver, sorry dog, wrong house. When I came to you, brethren, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words or wisdom. Okay, so he's again emphasizing, I'm not doing the philosopher's stunt. As a matter of fact, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I had no eyes for what you guys were. I was with you in weakness and in much fear and trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Origen, this is the only patristic reference I was going to go to. Origen says, you know, if our scriptures had persuaded people to believe because they had been written with rhetorical art or philosophical skill, there is no doubt that our faith would be said to depend on the art of words and on human wisdom rather on the power of God. Think about that for a second. Origen saying, if people were convinced of Christianity because somebody wrote well, it would never stand on its feet. People would be like, the only reason that this religion was ever successful was because they were good writers, they were good um, speakers. And he's saying, thank God they weren't. Thank God they weren't good speakers because Christianity went out because of the power demonstrated in it that made no sense. And that it made no sense is what made it so compelling. Right? Where that's like, this doesn't make sense. How could this be? That's what made it compelling. And so the second part is that God is saying that God did not only choose the wise and not, not only did God not choose the wise and powerful, God didn't use the wise and powerful. So St. Paul is saying God, like he shunned lofty words or wisdom. I'm not doing the rhetoric thing that the sophists in your city that we talked about last week that they were doing. And as a matter of fact, if you understand the English he's using in that section, he's saying, I'm actually a very bad public speaker. I never would have thought that about Paul. Because when Paul writes, he's prolific. But Paul's saying, actually, when I speak, I get really nervous. I'm not a good public speaker. And that was a really big deal to the Corinthians because people would get booed back in those days if you didn't speak well. You could have the most amazing argument, but if you're a poor speaker, you'd be shunned. You'd be treated with, with disdain. And he's saying, yeah, I didn't speak well. I showed you the power of God, but I didn't speak very well about it. The objective, again, was Christ. Um, yet among the mature, verse 6, we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the age of our glorification. None of the rulers of this age understood this, because if they did, they, would have they wouldn't have crucified the Lord of glory. Okay, I'm going to skip to the end of that section. Um, it's, it's tough. Um, what he's saying in that whole section, actually, no, I think I should read it because it's, sorry, there's a particular wording. My bad. Let's pick up at verse 10. God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Okay, saying that 
God's spirit is, is a manifestation of himself. It knows the depth of God because the spirit is God. For what person knows a man's thoughts except the spirit of the man which is in him? I'm going to break this down in a second. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is from God, that we might understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truth, truths to those who possess the Spirit. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Okay. What is he saying? Recall, the backdrop of Corinthians is their obsession with human wisdom and sophistication. And they're trying to use sophistication in the church. So, Paul is not saying that there are two levels of Christian maturity, carnal and spiritual. But he's saying that the sophistication of the Corinthians is fake. He's saying there's two kinds of spirits. The spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, that can be discerned spiritually. And that's a capital S. And a secular spirit, the mood of the masses. And they're in stark contrast to one another. And he's saying that wisdom has to be connected to the crucified Lord. And that these Corinthians who are flaunting what they thought was spiritual maturity, which we're going to get into the specifics from the next chapter, that was the end of chapter 2, or what they thought was sophistication, he's saying that is not sophisticated. And he's saying that actually you have nothing to do with the cross, that's stupid. So St. Paul is saying that that's stupid, and he's saying look at what happened historically when people try to use, this is so important, so important. He's saying, because keep in mind that for them, the death and resurrection of Christ is only 20 years old. This is living memory. He's saying, when the world used secular wisdom, secular wisdom, God himself came and they didn't recognize him. Wisdom herself came in the flesh. And the world didn't recognize it. That's why he's saying, if they had recognized him, they wouldn't have killed him. Literally. But they didn't, they couldn't figure it out. And they killed him. So he's saying, your secular wisdom, guys, why are you doing that? It's secular wisdom that killed Christ. Because from a human perspective, what Jesus was saying made no sense. Turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, my kingdom is not of this world. That's nonsense. Total nonsense. And in that secular perspective, you'll be killed too. And we are. And they were. He's saying, so why are you trying to gratify them? Why? Why are you going backwards? Why are you taking the gospel and trying to conform it to secular wisdom? No. Our wisdom is from the Spirit, capital S. He's saying that Let me give an analogy. 
only a person's spirit, their own spirit, knows the essence of that person. Okay, so AP, myself, the spirit of AP, my human spirit, gets AP. I get what I mean when I say something. I get what I intend when I do something. Because my spirit comes from the inner depths of me. Okay? So AP's spirit is the inner depth of AP. And it is manifest in AP's deeds, behaviors, thoughts, teachings, etc. That, that's how you interact with the spirit of me. The spirit of AP. St. Paul is saying, capital S, spirit of God, is the depths of God himself. And reveals the innermostness, godness of God. And that God's wisdom is the very internal of God. And so what he's saying is very, very, very sophisticated here. That's something, it's a wordy section. What he's saying is that consequently, anything coming from the Holy Spirit should be talking about the depth of God which must be tied to his wisdom and therefore must be tied to the Lord crucified. Why is he saying that? Because what you guys are doing, Corinthians, has nothing to do with the crucified Lord. So whatever spirit you are claiming can't be God's because you've divorced it from God. That is so compelling, right? So, so compelling. And that is being said to us too. The wisdom that you think you bring to the church, to your meetings, to your service, to your world, to your family, to your conflicts, is it your wisdom? In whose spirit do you claim? Because if it's in the spirit of God, it must be tied to the Lord crucified. Because the rest of Corinthians is going to be saying, here's how to crucify yourself. That's why this, this, this Bible study is called the cruciform life. It's about conforming ourselves to the cross of Christ if we want to really claim to be in the Spirit, to really have the gifts of the Spirit. So I'm going to skip some of the stuff that I was going to say um, about it. But I want to give some examples um, because I don't want to go over time because I, want, I don't want to get in the habit of taking too long. So I'll just skip some of the, the explanation parts. If there's follow-up questions, we'll take it. But... Where, why am I saying this is so relevant apart from what has already been said? We do this as a church whenever we start using corporate values to run the church. I'm not saying we can never learn from corporate values, but I'm saying church is not corporate. So if you start saying, okay, no, the church needs to have this admin structure. Who's this? Who's that? That's not how church runs. Or sometimes we try and run the church as a, as a democracy or is it a dictatorship? That's not how churches run, neither. Sometimes we evaluate priests, fellow servants, parishioners, the way you would at work. What's their value? What's their productivity? What's our return on investment? We start to view things from the lens of human resources and structures. We want target-based decisions with deliverables and action plans. And to add insult to injury, we do exactly what the Corinthians do. We view people who don't think this way as though they're less enlightened. Or 
We use religious concepts to do the same thing. I read this. I'm a disciple of so-and-so. These unenlightened people don't know that this is the right way to say it. This is the right way to do it. This is the right way to express it. We're Corinthians. The Corinthians are trying to conform the gospel to the wisdom of the world instead of the opposite. Question for all of us, how do we frame our scope? Ask yourself the questions that you need to ask before making a decision or responding to something, and then ask yourself where your questions come from. What do I mean by that? Knocking away in on the Black Lives Matter thing. But questions being asked over and over at the Q&As and talks that I've been at in the last couple of weeks. Abuna, shouldn't we take a stance? I'm not here to answer that question. It's not my objective. I'm saying ask where your question came from. Where did you get the question of shouldn't we take a stance from? You're using the word should. The word should means that you believe there is a right answer to this, that, there's, that there is a, I should or shouldn't ask this question. I should or shouldn't take a stance. Where are you getting that from? From secular society? From the gospel? Saying, I'm not answering. From the gospel? Secular society? From the church? From your neighbor? From a Google search? From an ad on your mobile phone? Where did your question get formed? Because what I'm saying is conform to the gospel, not secular, not the gospel conform to secularity. I was saying, I live in a secular world. You do, I do, we all do. What is my response in a secular world based on the gospel? Not the other way around. Where do your questions come from? And what he's also talking about here in that last section is, is your spirituality fake? Is your spirituality just some weird form, forgive me for saying that, of human reflection? Where to you, spirituality is just to, you know, get in touch with yourself, right? Um, this this, this touchy-feely stuff. Um, is, that, is that what you think it is? That's not spirituality. Spirituality is objective. It's a real thing. You have a real thing called the spirit. There's no such thing as I'm spiritual but not religious. That is, is so outrageously messed up to me. What is a spirit if you're claiming to have one? What is it? What are the rules that govern it? How can you say I'm spiritual? That's like to me saying I'm uh, bodily uh, but not physical. What does that even mean? Right? But is that is that your spirituality? What is a good Christian, St. Paul is saying? Someone who conforms to the cross. Someone who conforms to the cross. And I just want to pause. I know all of you at SMSM, we've talked about this when we did the Gospel of John and we did on Great Friday as well. But I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going to say it again for those who might be near the Bible study. I don't think you guys understand how big of a deal what Paul is saying when it comes to Christ crucified particularly. Because today we have this really cute clean cross with Jesus on it. They're bronze and they're gold and we can polish them and he shines and he looks really cute. And there's like maybe a trickle of blood coming from his head or his side. That's not crucifixion. 
crucifixion was the most possible shameful thing that could be done in that world. It was a punishment reserved for the lowest of the low as an act of humiliation, and Romans were not allowed to ever suffer that shame no matter what their crime was. Somebody who was crucified was, was, was put through whatever they're going to be put through, made to carry the cross to take a walk of shame, to be humiliated while you're holding it. After crucifying you, they would often kill your family in front of you so that you couldn't do anything. Sometimes, forgive me for how graphic this is, they would take a spear and shove it up the person's anus and it would come out the person's head. It's disgusting, it's graphic, it's terrible. And in a world of honor and shame, nothing was more shameful than that. Nothing was more dishonorable than that. Nothing was more humiliating than the act of being crucified. And so what Paul is saying in this chapter is, that's what God chose. I will take the most shameful, disgusting, humiliating, and most cursed and reviled and completely outcast thing in your existence... And I'm going to use that to show my power. It is foolishness in the eyes of the world that you could worship a man on a cross. And Paul is saying, that cross is what saves you, not your speech. And not only do you need to embrace that cross... You need to be crucified on that same cross if you would like to be resurrected. And that's what he's going to get into in the rest of um, Corinthians. And uh, glory be to God for amen. The rest of it, God willing, is going to be um, getting into very specific Corinthian issues. This was the general aspect. And soon we'll get into the specific. Um we did exa almost exactly an hour because we started a little bit late. So thank God we're getting back on track with time. Anyone who needs to go can go. But if anybody has questions, um, uh, I don't mind taking some questions if you got them. Guess not. <laughs> Super awkward. Thanks, Fred. I really miss you. I'll see you soon, actually, God willing. Um, uh, sorry, question one. Uh, I understand you are saying the church is not corporate, but there is something of a corporate structure to the church. For example, the bishop having the last say on any decision, or the priest being the leader of the church, or the admin of the church, or the church board, or church bylaws. All, the, all these point to a corporate structure. Having said this, how are we to run the church in a non-corporate way with this current structure? Um, actually, a lot of what we're doing doesn't even make sense spiritually. So the church needed to organize herself. The church needed to organize herself. But actually, the church is supposed to be run very differently. So, for example, the idea of a church board, which is new. I'm not anti-church boards. I'm thankfully not in a church that nobody has to worry. I'm not taking shots at any board. I don't have one. Um, but the church board is not supposed to actually have really any say um, in the spiritual administration of the church. So the church board isn't supposed to have a say in how many meetings you have or in whether or not there's enough outreach or whether or not, you know, we should choose this iconostasis or this. That's actually not supposed to be really for the board. 
the boards were, were established to make sure that there's a check because priests are human too and bishops are, are, are human too. Um, that there's not an abuse of people's money um, and that not every priest has the gift of administration. Um, and so the board and the priest and the bishop all should be bowing, of course, to the gospel. Um, that's number one. So that's supposed to be the main thing is that we bow to the gospel. Um, and number two, um, the best way to see it is to go back to history because the bishops came first. The bishops were made first. Second um, came the deacons because the bishops couldn't handle all the work. So the deacons were made to serve the tables and to do stuff. Then when that got to be too big, then the bishop ordained presbyters. And the, and the presbyter became an extension of the bishop. Um, that's why, for example, um, I know this is a digression, but it, it's to, to show a point. Um, that's why the Roman Catholics, for example, have confirmation later. Um, they were actually trying to preserve something, regardless of whether you agree or disagree, but they were preserving that it was originally the function of the bishop to, to do the confirmation. So the non-corporate way is to not say, here's the structure that makes sense because it's at work. Or a successful organization runs in this way. If you're speaking like that, it means that you're saying the standard is the corporate. Versus saying, hey, you know, at work this has been helping. How could we apply this according to the gospel? And then and then bow it that way. Um, sorry, it's a, it's a general answer because the question is, is general my bad? Um, and I know it needs to be general, so forgive me. Um, I just, I'm not, I'm not shirking the question, but feel free uh, to follow up with a more specific one. Um, how can you give practically uh, glory to God when someone praises you for doing something good? It's by recognizing that anything good in you was something that you received. Right? So if you said something true, you didn't invent truth. If you were compassion, cap, compassionate, you didn't invent compassion. Um, if it was wise, it's not you that made it wise. So it's about subjecting it back to the truth, right? Of being like, okay, um, this is good because God is good because God literally made it, right? the reason why it's, it's good is because it is itself good, not because I made it good. Um, so it's, it's by shifting it back to its real source. Um, once you can view it as not being from you, your own self, it actually becomes so much easier and you won't really think very much about anybody's praise because it, it's like, Let me give an analogy. It's almost like your dad gave you $100,000 and said, distribute this money. Like, that's your mandate. Distribute this money um, to charities. A person who's like, oh, I gave this and I gave this is forgetting that the $100,000 came from dad. It didn't come from you. And so it's making that connection. But God allows us to be happy about, about fruit. So if you were excited that you saw that this charity was so excited to receive the money, that's not sinful. You're just happy that somebody's happy. You were happy that your dad gave. 
So that's not even pride. The pride is when you steal it for yourself and say, I'm so good. I gave dad's money to someone else. But usually be, I'm so good. I gave money. But no, you didn't. You distributed something that wasn't yours. That's why we say in liturgy, we offer you these things from what is yours. Because it's not ours. I hope that, that helped a bit. Um, after the fall, um, is our nature sinful even after baptism? It's not that our nature is sinful. It's that we inherited a diseased nature. And so we are restored after baptism to this first, um, uh, to this, to this post-resurrection nature. But we have free will. So we can disease it again. So what's changed in the New Testament is the solution. Everybody in the Old Testament was waiting for the solution to come in Christ. The grace of the New Testament is that we can be repaired right away. That's what Eucharist and confession are for. The reparative. Good question. Um, and to the person who wrote that, I saw that you emailed me. I just want to tell you that I'm sorry I'm putting myself on blast here. I owe you an email. I just want you to know that I got it and I haven't had a chance yet. Um, how do we ensure our intentions for serving are actually pure um, and not merely for that feel-good component? That requires a lot of self-reflection. But I'd also say that even if part of it is feel-good, it doesn't mean that you can't do it. It just means that there's work to do. Um, we, we all have some bit of pride to us. And we also all, like enjoy certain things and that those things are not intrinsically wrong it's just a matter of am i doing it only for this or not right so for example it wouldn't be a sin for me if dad says hey habibi can you go out and, and distribute this money and i happen to like it it makes me feel good that's not intrinsically wrong right but if i say that i'm only gonna do it if i feel good that's when something's gone wrong so i think it comes back from some examination of am i in communion with dad or do I live independently of dad? And that's why like, I think people need to spend more time in silence every day. More time in reflection. More time in, in, um, in communion. Um, so that that question could be asked. Right? Of like, am I? Um, am I doing this? And then to just confess it. Because again, it doesn't mean that a person has to, has to stop. Um, how do we present the gruesome death of our Lord to young children? <laughs> Uh, yeah, that one's rough. I definitely wouldn't say it like I just did to uh, a bunch of kids and they did this and they shoved up. Yeah, that, that's that's bad. Um, same question for all the killing of the Old Testament. Um, I'm not a I'm not a parent, so I don't want to claim to be an expert on this um, by any means. My own opinion and it's just an opinion and, and, and nothing more. Um, I wouldn't make up stuff. OK, and by that, what I mean, I don't like I don't feel comfortable when. People call the blood juice. I got like it's it's not juice. It's the blood of Jesus, right? So if you're not comfortable saying that yet, okay, but like don't call it something that is that it's not, right? First of all, um, second is that maybe it's more appropriate at a certain age. Maybe it's not appropriate to talk about the crucifixion or violence at a certain age, but that as they mature, of saying what's appropriate to their age, based on your discernment as a parent. For example, of they were mean to our Lord, right? Or they hurt the Lord Jesus, if they're not ready yet to talk about death. Um, just like Pope Shenouda himself was like, at one point he wrote, 
like please stop showing your young children these saint videos where they're being ripped up and their guts are coming out like like you're scaring like i was straight up i i had a period where i was afraid of the dark because of watching saint mina video for the first time and i was like oh my lord do they kill all the kids named mina like and i i actually that night asked my mom to leave the lights on so whatever is appropriate to their age and then use the language appropriate to their age but just don't make up stuff don't change stuff um and then make sure that you understand it yourself um because when a person really understands something they can dumb it down if you don't understand it you're not dumbing it down you're just dumb i'm like generally speaking all of us right but when you really really get it yourself um, it'll be so much easier to put in simple language so that if you know what is the meaning of the violence, what they were doing, um, what it means, it'll be easier to convey. I'm so sorry. I'm sucking at answering your specific questions tonight. I hope you don't hate my guts. Um, if the Christ and cross are the goal, how do we let our ego go, allowing us to be in that spot of the cross shame? This is a very deep question. For example, turning the other cheek. If I turn the other cheek and I'm hit, how do I accept it? Um, that requires a lot of discipleship. Because that requires learning self-denial in the small, not just in the big. People don't understand why the monks were so ascetical. They think they were just doing spiritual... No. If you learn how to say no to yourself. That's asceticism. What you're saying is, I am not entitled. I'm not entitled. I'm not going to pamper myself. And I'm going to say no to myself. And when you say no to yourself, what is doing yourself is dying, yourself is becoming crucified. So when yourself becomes crucified, What's happened is a, a, this, this thing that was in you, that was you, when it dies, what does it get filled with? Other. The self-emptying of God. You become focused on the other. You become focused on laying down your life and your will for God, for other, God and neighbor. And so now when your neighbor hits you, you're not going to have a thought of, oh my goodness, how do I accept this? It won't be your question. It will be, oh no, what have I done to this person? Your first thought becomes the other, not yourself. Um, or it becomes a concern for his crime to be held against him. Like boss St. Stephen. Right? That St. Stephen in the middle of them killing him was able, what was his thought? It was them. Lord, forgive them. What was our Lord's words on the cross? Lord, forgive them. Right? The person who's killed the self looks outwardly. So I would say what you should look for, go to your spiritual guide and talk about what are the exercises I can take to start to learn self-denial. It'll be in speech. It'll be in eating. It'll be in drinking. It'll be in, 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 walking it'll be in in salary it'll be in so many things right i was like i've been blessed to meet so many saints and it's common to all of them right that they empty they all empty um awesome 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 um spiritual application of these two chapters 
Um, Follow-up question on the corporate topic. Um, some servants or clergy use the we are not corporate or we are not a democracy line to avoid organization or taking other people's opinions into account or to have a fully autonomous authority in all decisions. How do we deal with this in a spiritual way? Yeah, you're right. And there's going to be there's going to be rights and wrong from everybody, right? So I'm not, um, I just want to come off as I am pro-clergy, anti-lady. I'm definitely not. What I am trying to say is that the structure of the church isn't corporate and that actually the priest does have the say in most things. Um, that's not comfortable even for me to say. I'm, I'm, like I said, I'm happy that I'm not a parish priest so I don't feel defensive um, about this. Um, but a good leader is a good listener too. Right? So a good leader shouldn't be somebody who just comes out and you're saying, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and not to you because I'm holy and righteous and I wear a black dress and you're not, therefore I'm God and you're not, so get underneath my feet. That's messed up. Okay? But I would say the first thing, if I were in that position, the first question to me would be, number one, is it my place to speak? Objectively. I do this even as a priest, by the way. I'm not just saying this to lady. This is for all of us. Is it my place to speak? Yes or no? Why do I think it's my place to speak? Who do I think I'm representing? Then the matter, if the answer is yes, it's my place to speak. Okay, no problem. Because if I know why it's my place to speak, that makes the conversation so much easier because you get to say, I'm speaking in the capacity of X. So much easier. It's objective. Second, this thing that I'm presenting, is it a dogmatic issue? Or is it an issue of preference? Because if it is a dogmatic issue... If the priest isn't listening, you go straight to your bishop. But if it's not dogmatic, then you've got to go in not wanting, and again, whenever I say you, I'm never talking about the, the question writer, I mean generally. You've got to go in with the mentality of, I am just like any other member of the community presenting an idea, and part of the reason we have priests is that they're supposed to discern those things. And that there should be some level of trust in that priest. If there isn't that level of trust, you need to ask why it is. And then that's its own discussion of, well, then how do I deal with I don't trust the priest? And that can be for valid reasons. I'm not even saying that um, sarcastically, right? Um, but I submit it because the priest hears a billion ideas, right? I'm going to give an example. I'll give an example um, since I'm not there anymore. One of the churches that I served at, um, a couple of people from the church are, are, are on here. Um, some people um, wanted a screen. Very contentious issue in, in, in the parish. Uh, the previous priest um, had spoken boldly against them. And I'm not giving my opinion in this discussion with, with what my view is on screens or not screens. Okay, um, And the priest had his reasons for it. I'm not saying the priest was right or wrong, but he had his views about screens. He spoke very um, firmly about that concept. Some parishioners really agreed. Some really strongly disagreed. So when I came in, this is what I mean, is that you've got to realize when you're going to bring up your opinion that sometimes there's more going on, right? I must have had at least 15 to 20 people come to me privately you know, Abuna, um, I really think that you should definitely get the screens. 
Um, it has been a divisive issue. And if you do this, it's really going to unite the people and it's going to really do this and this and this. All positive things. If I'm going to listen to that person, just be like, oh, great, great idea. Let's, let's, let's bring the screens. What you're saying is logical. And what they said was logical. Another person comes in. I know one of the things that most draws me to this church is that we don't have the technology. We're able to be earthy. We're down to earth. It makes me really experience the liturgy more. It's like the main reason that I come here. I hope to God you don't get the screens because if you do, I don't know if I'm going to be able to come here anymore. And then multiply that by 7 to 10 for the number of people who had opinions. What do I do? What do I do? Right? So the priest is having to deal with a whole bunch of things that are coming in all at the same time. And so many people that are claiming they're going to be affected. And so many people who aren't claiming they're going to be affected but will be affected. Right? There's also an aspect of what is the spiritual discipleship in that church. Because a priest is also raising people in what he knows. Right? So for I'll give another example. In that same church, I was asked... Um, to set up the deacons to have these two choruses there. And I said, no, I usually didn't say no. Usually I didn't say no, but I did say no that time. And I said to them, listen, I'm not making a claim that my way is right. This is not dogmatic. There's no dogma here. I'm not a, I'm not a deacon type. I was never a good deacon type. You can ask Fred, he's on here. I was never really good at that. Okay. And so I've had, I've seen like the way that people have done deacon things and some of them, made me really uncomfortable. And so I said, I didn't come from a deacon culture strong enough for me to feel that um, I can disciple in it. So I'm not comfortable doing it. So if you don't mind, leave that for the incoming priest, because I knew I was leaving, to deal with, because I don't want to start something that might do damage, and I don't want to put a system that I don't know how to interact with. And so I actually wasn't even disagreeing with any of the logic that any of them were saying in any way. At all, actually. As a matter of fact, they had really, really good points. Um, and so we, so what I'm trying to get at is, is there's a lot more going on. And so if you don't go in with the attitude of, of winning, this is what this these two chapters have been about. You're, you should be going with the idea of unity. What brings unity to all? What brings peace to all? How can I crucify my will? I'm allowed to present my will, but I should crucify my will. So that whatever I do is saying, here's, um, here's an idea, here's an opinion, without having the expectation of being gratified. If you don't have an expectation of being gratified, you'll be so peaceful. That's crucifixion of the will, of saying, not my will, but yours. And so that you'll, you'll feel so peaceful about any answer you get. And as a matter of fact, people who do that tend to be taken much more seriously, right? Because they're not used to, because they're not contentious, right? They're always being sacrificial. All right. That was the last question that I received. That was awesome. Uh, thank you guys. All right. Let us end with uh, prayer and then we'll, we'll all be zounds. In the name of the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We ask your Lord to hear us the intercessions and praise your Holy Mother, Teotokos, St. Mary. The great Saint Anthony, Saint Pope Carlos, and Mary Mina, we pray with all thanksgiving. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. 
Lead us not to temptation, but us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. The love of God, the Father, grace, and the God, and the Son, the communion, and the gift of the Holy Spirit, all go in peace. The peace of the Lord.